0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, as interest rates continue to rise, Canada's banking regulator considers big changes on how much banks can lend to already indebted consumers. We look at what this means to your bottom line. Plus, the B.C. government announces a $500 million rental fund to safeguard old properties from speculators. Will it work? Plus, lesson learned, we talked to YVR CEO about the unprecedented holiday chaos at Vancouver Airport. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. The B.C. government says more renters in B.C. will be protected through the creation of a new $500 million rental protection fund. Uh, B.C. Premier David Eby, along with his housing minister, made the announcement this morning saying the government's actions will make a big difference for thousands of renters in communities across the province.
1: This fund is going to preserve affordable housing for renters across B.C. for many years to come. It will provide one-time capital grants to nonprofit housing organizations to purchase affordable rental buildings and co-ops that are listed for sale. This will protect renters living there now and safeguard that affordable housing for the long term.
0: That was Premier David Eby, who is of course joined by BC's Minister of Housing, Ravi Kela, who is joining us now. Minister, thank you for speaking to us today. Uh, hey, Jaz, thanks for having me. So walk me through this. Why is this needed? Does the present system, including you know uh, funding BC Housing, uh, involvement of the private sector, how does this improve things or at the very least address issues that you think have been a challenge uh, for the non-profit sector?
1: Well, most people, Jaz, are shocked to hear that in the last 25 years, we've lost 97,000 purpose-built rentals across the province. And that's a massive loss. And so in the last few years in particular, we've seen some really positive signs. Uh, last year, we were just about 13,000 new rental, purpose, uh, purpose-built rental starts. Uh, this year, we're at over 14,000. So the trend line is great. And just in context, well, 10 years ago, it was about 2,000 a year. So we're starting to see a good trend line. But when you're building purpose-built rental, and at the same time, you're losing rentals because buildings are getting older and people are deciding instead of having them as rentals, we're going to you know, sell them on the market. Uh, you're actually not really getting ahead. And so today's announcement, the $500 million, was to partner with the not-for-profit societies to buy buildings that are perhaps go up for sale so that we can protect them and keep the rates of rents low for renters. And I think it's, uh, it's uh, something they've been calling for for the last Seven years and uh, and obviously they were delighted to hear the news be uh, made today. Um,
0: can these nonprofits with this fund actually compete against the private sector when bidding for some of these um, uh, these properties?
1: Uh, certainly uh, you know the, the same decision making that they're making are the same things that some of the companies are going to bid. Uh, are are making, which is you want to make sure that you're buying the deal at an appropriate value for the rents you're going to charge. The difference is the not-for-profit sector folks are not trying to make a profit out of it. So they've got a a particular margin that they can play with. But, you know, the building where we made the announcement was a classic example. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, a year ago, the government stepped in uh, as a one-off to help uh, the uh, tenants in that situation. There was 400 people that were about to get evicted because the building was going to be sold province gave some money we were able to secure the building 400 people get to keep their places and we got to keep it in an affordable uh in, in an affordable way through the co-ops association so the model works uh, it won't work for every building that comes on sale some of the units will be uh, so expensive that you know we won't be able to have affordable rental units available the private sector will just take them but some types of buildings it will work and that's what the fund is
0: about and, and this is a, a one-time grant
1: it's a one time, uh, $500 million grant. Uh, and again, uh, what was highlighted in the, in the announcement today from, uh, the leaders of the not, uh, BC not for profit housing society, uh, was that they also are hearing already from private, uh, from lenders, from, uh, other funds that are similar that they can find ways to partnership. A build partnership. So I suspect that half a billion dollars will become a lot more now that they can leverage it off this.
0: Now, there has been significant talk over the last couple of years of private equity firms, pension funds and rates or real estate investment funds gobbling up um, rental properties as an investment strategy simply because... Uh, they offer decent returns for their investors and long-term returns. Do you think there is still room for these types of funds and trusts uh, to help uh, in the building and preservation of the rental rentals in our city, in our province, or do you view these uh, funds, uh, these rates and pension funds as predatory?
1: Well, you know, the national housing strategy clearly laid out the challenge we have with REITs in particular, uh, where money is being pooled in and and properties are being bought. Uh, Often uh, the tenants are being evicted so they can charge higher rates. And so there are some serious challenges in that. The federal government has acknowledged that. And we have to take action here as well to address that because, you know, housing needs to be uh, for housing. Uh, And and when you have a, a system that's set up, that's just looking at the profit margins and not thinking about the people, we're starting to be left in situations where we have these challenges. So the, the fund we've announced allows the not-for-profit sector to get in the game. And what we've also seen, Jazz, uh, which is a benefit from this, and we've heard clearly from them, is as these not for profits uh, um, properties also increase in value, they can take that equity and actually either put on more units or, in some cases, make other investments, to bring more affordable units online, and so you know, really, it's an important piece for our overall housing strategy. But we've got a lot more work to do. Uh,
0: is there any consideration uh, by your government of a potential law that would ensure first right of refusal to give nonprofits first dibs on on purchases? Would you be would the NDP be considering that?
1: Uh, We're certainly considering that. We're considering a whole host of other things as well. Uh, Premier Eby signaled that today in the press conference as well. We know Quebec has done that and done it successfully. Uh, And so, yes, we are considering that. uh, But we're going to be launching a refreshed housing strategy in the coming months. And in that, you'll see a whole host of initiatives. Uh, Again, Premier Eby's got a very, very ambitious plan uh, to take on the housing challenge and we'll be able to lay out some of those actions uh, in, in the coming months.
0: Do you think this will deter the private sector, though, if you are considering um, a law... Uh, policy that would uh, ensure first right of refusal to give to nonprofits uh, in regards to these purchases. Um, I'm just trying to understand this. I mean, I think there's a role some would argue for the private sector to build rentals uh, and to build housing—a significant role, many would argue. Uh, is there a role for the private sector, or do you think this is a case where um, you actually need to, uh, you know, give nonprofits the first right of refusal when it comes to purchases?
1: Oh, well, there definitely is a role for the private sector in building rentals. I mean, uh, you know, the fourteen thousand units that are coming online, I would say you know, well over eighty percent of those are private sector, and so and that's a good thing. Uh, what we're saying is, if a building is coming up for sale uh, and it comes on the market, and we've got either REITs on one side or somebody who wants to come tear it down and and build uh, condos for sale, we want to find ways to preserve it. And so that's what the fund is ultimately bogeous. It's about existing buildings. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have landlords that let the building kind of fall into disrepair, thinking, hey, I'll tear it down and, and sell the condos off. Now we have the ability through the not for profit side, get in there, spend some money, fix the building up, keep rents low, so that people who are making you know less than $25 an hour have a place to live in our communities. And so... Uh, again, I'm excited about the announcement. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, the great investments that, that, that uh, the not-for-profit folks will be able to make from it.
0: A final question. So we're, we're going to get a lot more housing announcements, I'm, I'm suspecting, over the next uh, two to three months uh, from you and from the Premier?
1: Uh, you know, uh, again, the Premier has made it clear housing is one of his top priorities, and I'm actually really grateful for it. Uh, of course, I've got the, uh, the responsibility to try to keep up with his pace. Uh, But I'm up to it. And so you'll be hearing a lot more things on housing and not only the coming weeks, months, uh, months ahead, because it's going to require a lot of work. You know, as you know, Jazz, very well, the housing situation, it's not uh, one thing we'll fix it all. It's going to require a whole host of things happening at the same time. Public, uh, um, uh, public investments, private investments and the not for profit sector. And and that's what today's uh, thing was about. It was an announcement on helping the not for profit sector. Uh, help address some of the challenges
0: in the housing sector. Uh, Minister, thank you for your time today. I look forward to chatting with you in the future.
1: Anytime, Josh. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, since air tags were released in 2021, we've seen a few stories about how they've been used to track down lost luggage. In one instance, an airline employee in Florida was caught with over. of stolen luggage thanks to an AirTag. Another story saw newlyweds returning from their honeymoon track down lost luggage using an AirTag. In fact, there was even a brief controversy when German airline Lufthansa said it was banning AirTags from checked bags, calling the item tracker a dangerous good. The airline ultimately walked back that statement, but without any details on why it ever made the announcement in the first place. Then there is the story of the Cliffers from Victoria who returned home from Mexico without their luggage. Global's Andrew picks up the story.
2: Paul Clifford and his wife Helen have spent close to seven weeks trying to retrieve their lost luggage. Trouble is, they've located their bag, but they say they can't get help from Air Canada.
3: If something goes wrong, you'd expect that they would take care of you.
2: After hearing countless reports of airlines losing luggage, the Victoria couple thought they would invest in an Apple AirTag, a wireless tracking device that can attach to several items, including checked bags. The technology was put to the test this past November, and the couple was returning home from Mexico City. When they landed in Vancouver before departing to Victoria,
3: Paul's wife checked their AirTag on their phone. And it said our bag was... 4,000 kilometres away, which didn't sound good.
2: It wasn't. The bag was still sitting at Mexico City International Airport. Paul said he contacted Air Canada and opened a claim right away. He says he was told he would have his bag in a short period of time.
3: Well, my bag never arrived. Again, reiterated that there was nothing they could do except send a, a note to Mexico City.
2: Two weeks went by and Paul and his wife were in for a shock. When the couple checked the location of their air tag, it indicated the bag was now at the International Airport in Madrid, Spain.
3: How can this happen?
2: Paul says he continued to call Air Canada with no results.
3: They would escalate the file up to a more important stage, and I would be contacted in 48 hours. That never happened.
2: Consumer Matters reached out to Air Canada on Paul's behalf. Air Canada expressing its regret, stating in part, Given the time that has now passed without success recovering the baggage, we have advised the customer we are moving to compensation. The claim is currently being processed and we will be following up directly with the customer. After that response, we sent Air Canada a recent screenshot of Paul's luggage sitting in Madrid and asked if Air Canada was still planning on retrieving the bag, but we did not get a response. In Paul Clifford's case with Air Canada stating it's moving to compensation, he says he's now left feeling frustrated and, like his bag, abandoned.
0: That was uh, GlobalBC's Anne Drua uh, reporting on the uh, Cliffers from Victoria. Joining me now is Andy Brar. He's a tech and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com. Hello, Andy. Hi, jazz uh, You know, I, I feel sorry uh, for this couple in Victoria, the, the Cliffers there. But, you know, there's something about uh, the story when I was listening to it. I just love the fact that airlines are now being held accountable to a new level when it comes to lost luggage.
4: Well, I'm confused here with that story, Jazz, because like that AirTag's got about a year of battery life. So are they ever going to get it back? Or for the next year, are they going to just be watching this luggage as it travels the world but never gets to their de- final destination? What do you, how,
0: how does it work? I mean, so you're saying it's got a year's, a year's power that it can keep sending information
4: back? Yeah, so what it's using, it's using those little watch batteries, actually. And so it's not rechargeable. You use this little watch battery, Mm -hmm. and it's using a low Bluetooth energy. So it's this this type of Bluetooth that really doesn't take much energy. And the way it works is it taps into Apple's Find My Network. So if this luggage, if somebody walks by, they have to be within 33 feet of that luggage, and they have an iPhone, they have an Apple Watch, they have a MacBook, they have an iPad, Any kind of Apple device that's part of that Find My network, it will ping to that piece of luggage and then it triangulates based upon different i i devices to know where it's located. And so that's how the whole thing works, but it does it anonymously. So the devices don't really know who is like what device is which. It just knows that it's nearby. And that's how the user is able to, to get updates on the location of that luggage using the Apple AirTag. And
0: so that that uh, air tag sends information back up to a year,
4: well, as long as that battery life is still pinging, and so if they just bought it, I think they should probably get about a year's life uh, of battery. But I guess it depends how many times it keeps pinging to other devices, um, but yeah, they could probably for the next couple of months they're going to be looking at that luggage so i'm I'm very curious even though they get compensation. Will they ever get that luggage back? Because they're going to be able to see it for about a year now.
0: That's actually a story (laughs) with a bag in in Spain. I mean, I find it fascinating that... uh uh, there was that one incident, as I was saying, uh, with an airline employee who had over fifteen thousand dollars yep. of stolen luggage, and uh, they've uh, they were able to locate locate it thanks to an AirTag. I think it was actually in December, where I think it was a United passenger who said, "Hey, to the employee who stole my luggage, I see that you live in X, Y, and Z area. Perhaps you could return my luggage." I mean, there is a it, 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 there is a sense of accountability, which I just love. And the fact that they, they're calling out, people are calling out, everyday consumers are calling out the BS of the airline industry, uh, I think is fabulous.
4: Well, think about it. Before this technology came about, you just had to trust the airline that your luggage was going there. And I know everybody out there listening Every time you check your luggage, you're just crossing your fingers that it's gonna make it to the destination with you. But with this, it gives you that peace of mind. Now you can go to Best Buy right now and buy Apple AirTag for $40. That is the best peace of mind uh, investment that you're gonna make for luggage. In fact, I think all luggage in the future should just come with it embedded. Um, it'd be great if Apple and Android got together and they tap both of their networks because that because there's about 1.8 billion Apple devices globally. Mm-hmm. But if they could tap into the Android network as well, that's just gonna put so much power to the consumers. And then all these airlines, you know, even the FAA in the US has already deemed it to be safe. So it's gonna put these airlines accountable to to their customers. And what be great is that they could also make a great social feature where you could kind of share all your frustrations to hold these uh, airlines accountable, especially on social media, because the, the air tag don't lie. You know, it, it knows where it is. And it the, the airlines are going to have to do something about it and be more proactive in getting luggage from point A to point B. Exactly. like You know, in many cases,
0: it, it's an afterthought for them. They'll get it back to whether it's, it's two days or... 15 days, but now at least you can track it and you know exactly where it is. In the, in the case of uh, this poor uh, family, the Cliffers, uh, they got home to Victoria and somehow their luggage ended up uh, in Mexico and then, or sorry, it remained in Mexico and now has ended up in Madrid, Spain. So it, uh, we'll, we'll keep you updated and see where the luggage ends up next. Andy, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jeff. Well, today the most boring of headlines came out of Ottawa. It goes like this. The Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, or the OSFI, launched a public consultation of Guideline B20 on residential mortgage underwriting. That's a pretty boring headline, isn't it? Well, that boring headline could have significant impact on your bottom line. What's it really mean? Well, essentially, Canada's banking regulator, the OSFI, which is the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, so the banking regulator is proposing big changes for housing finance with potentially three new limits on how lenders grant mortgages to you. They include new restrictions on mortgage size and debt loads, Uh, New debt service coverage restriction, which essentially means this would further limit a borrower's mortgage payment uh, or other obligations to a percentage of income. And three, new interest rate affordability stress tests. We already have stress tests. This would be another stress test on top of that stress test. Now, the proposals come as the Bank of Canada has ramped up interest rates by four percentage points since 2021. The average Canadian home price has plunged 22% in the past nine months alone and the threat of recession still looms. Joining me now to discuss the proposals announced uh, by the bank regulator is Ron Butler. He's the president of of Butler Mortgage. Ron, thanks for speaking to us today.
5: Always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Uh, Talk to me a little bit about uh, this report today from the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions. Um, uh, You know, big headlines about potentially uh, changes to how much banks could lend to consumers. How do you read this?
5: Well, a version of this is going to go through, and a version of this is necessary. The crazy part is it was more necessary two and a half years ago. Uh, The reality of this thing is that the barn door was left open for two and a half years as uh, mortgages went through the roof, in terms of volume, in terms of house prices, absolutely crazy in the two big markets in Canada. And it's as if you left the barn door open and the horse had wandered away to a whole different postal code before you ever stopped and thought, maybe we should take, take a look at this. You know, that, that is the true horror show of this stuff.
0: Uh, we already have stress tests, so this would just make it even tougher, potentially, if, if uh, these, the, the regulator goes through. So it would be just tougher to get a mortgage and be approved for a mortgage? The
5: concept here, more specifically, is that a limitation on how many, how much mortgages you can get. This is, in a, in a way, focused on people who want to own more than one property, certainly people who want to have multiple rental properties. You can, if you understand the market we're in, you can really put a bullseye on that. I mean, that is really clear right now is that that's, that's what this is about. Again, we won't have a full answer for a few months, but that appears to be the direction.
0: Uh, and how do you think who's going to have the influence at this point? broader conversation that we're seeing with the regular. It's a, it's a, it's a discussion at this point, a hearing. Um, how will this be decided? Does the regulator decide, or is this going to be banks going to play a big in, have an influence in regards, have influence in regards to what the final outcome would look like in regards to policy?
5: There's no question uh, that the biggest influencers on the bank regulator are the big five banks. I mean, that's just the truth. Don't get me wrong. The regulator will reach decisions that the banks don't always agree with. But in terms of who does the regulator listen to, those big five banks are the biggest players at the table. There's no question.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, uh, when headlines like this occur, and and, 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 uh, they are headlines, they are uh, glaring at times, um, what happens to the market now in your mind over the next few months, uh, just as we're having this conversation about a potential for tightening of mortgage rules?
5: Well, this is actually the, the craziest, unexpected consequence of this whole thing. I guarantee you that as of tomorrow, every active realtor in this country is going to start calling their prospect list, start emailing everybody, start putting up blog posts, start putting up TikTok posts, that this is your last chance to buy, that you need to buy right now. Forget about the pricing. Forget about the mortgage rates. If you don't buy right now, these proposed mortgage changes are going to make sure you cannot get a mortgage and you will not be able to buy a house. I mean, it's not going to be as direct as that, although a few will be. A few will be absolutely just that direct. Buy now or you're out of luck forever. You're going to see that from some realtors. Most realtors, it'll be subtle. It'll be, hey, I think you should really try to Think about this hard because this could have a major effect on your ability to get a mortgage. But if you think about it, it's the disconnect that we have in Ottawa. You know, if you've got a Department of Finance that should really be concerned about these high rates for Canadians, high mortgage rates, the difficulty some people are having to pay their mortgage, and also still very, very high prices, some of the highest prices for houses in the entire English-speaking world, Hmm. or any part of the world. I mean, this is literally some of the highest prices in Vancouver and Toronto that exist anywhere. And yet, the Department of Finance, which is supposed to, in fact, oversee the bank regulator, the bank regulator is supposed to be independent, but there's got to be a little bit of communication back and forth. What's going to happen right now is the bank regulator, rightly or wrongly, I think the regulations are probably going to be better, but still, this is going to have a Big push to buy now or you 're never going to get a house again at quite possibly the worst possible time when interest rates are, mortgage rates are at their very top, and house prices are still very, very high so an und- unintended consequence of a kind of disorganized operation out of ottawa uh,
0: did the regu- has the regulator failed as you said the the, the, the barn door has been left open for a couple of years now. Uh, This is a a regulator, one would argue, is playing catch-up now, but in your mind, does that mean a regulator has failed at its core to protect the integrity of the banking system when house prices uh, significantly increase, and more importantly, that people were borrowing uh, in significant manners, and now they're feeling the pinch?
5: Well, it's very hard to say that we have a bad banking regulator in Canada where we have extremely strong banks. It's hard to say the regulator hasn't done its job. The difficulty that I have is that uh, some simple, simple changes uh, a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, which they were actually actively considering in 2019, the decisions to say, look, you can't borrow money on your existing house to make the down payment on your rental property. You shouldn't be doing that because effectively that becomes 100% financing of a rental property. And that creates a world in which people who want to become first-time home buyers are competing with people who have better resources because they can just pull money out of a house that's already gone way up in value and buy that house as a rental property. So that was something they actually talked about in 2019, and it just disappeared. And now something different has come back. But it is a good example of how that would have helped the banking system. There would have been less investors in real estate today. There would have been less people with leverage because they took out a HELOC, a home equity line of credit on their existing house to create that down payment to buy the rental property. And leverage in a market like this is always stress on lending. That's just one follows the other. So you could say, yes, they have decided to take action at a time when they should have taken action three
0: years. Ago. Ron, thank you so much for your time. I really
5: appreciate it. My pleasure. Always great talking.
0: Let's talk about a common complaint heard from uh, municipal um, officials over the past couple of decades, actually probably three decades. It's one certainly I heard uh, when I was a reporter since the uh, 90s. And I think maybe that's where the trend uh, originally started. Essentially, city councillors say the provincial and the federal government have downloaded and offloaded provincially mandated and federally mandated services to local government without sufficiently, if at all, matching the services with funding. Now that can include road maintenance and replacement, homelessness, wildlife, policing, uh, mental health, and transit. Those are some of the services they feel that have been downloaded to the municipal governments. Over the years, the cost-cutting has resulted in communities being pressured to address these service gaps um, to the extent that limited local government funds are being used to fund provincially, even federally mandated services, negatively impacting, of course, your local city hall's ability to adequately address core uh, local government services. Now, city halls across BC are deep in the middle of budgeting and looking at what type of property tax increases they will be announcing. Well, our next guest is asking New Westminster Council uh, to tally and quantify what downloading is actually costing local taxpayers. It's something the City of Vancouver has also done. Joining me now is Daniel Fontaine, the City Councillor in New Westminster. Daniel, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Josh. So, what prompted this? Was there a particular event or a service that you're sort of looking at? That said, you know what we've got to we've got to quantify this. What what prompted this?
6: Well, there were two things that prompted it. Uh, firstly, uh, the uh, 2023 budget uh, process is well underway now. So, as a new city councilor, I'm getting briefed on all the various uh, budget items that are being uh, prepared. And needless to say, uh, you know, one of my concerns or questions is how much of what's being presented to me is actually uh, responsibility of senior orders of government that are being funded by um, local ratepayers. So that was one thing that triggered it and also uh, perhaps a a more high profile expenditure that kind of triggered some of that discussion as well. And that related to um, a six hundred and fifty thousand dollar toilet, public toilet, which is being installed in Hayek Square. And, And we know that that public toilet is being put in there to address many of the social issues that, uh, you know, the, the the unhoused and the homeless are facing in downtown New Westminster because many of them don't have housing, they don't have uh, access to social housing, etc. And so the city of New Westminster ratepayers are now going to be funding a $650,000 toilet plus, I believe, a, a couple of full-time uh, jobs to staff the toilet. And it, obviously that got me thinking, It's it's much bigger than that one particular piece of infrastructure and we can't quantify it unlike the city of Vancouver the city of New West has not quantified and actually put on paper how much we are spending as local ratepayers for programs that really should be picked up the tab should be picked up by uh, senior orders of government. So hang
0: on walk me through this this toilet you're speaking of so this is is this a new expenditure then?
6: Absolutely a new expenditure Um, it's uh, there is a temporary one that's been put up um, right now, uh, down on Front Street, but this is a new expenditure. We were just briefed on in council about it a few weeks ago, and it'll be a, I believe it's about six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I think is what it's being estimated. Um, it is a, it'll be a public toilet, right in Hayek Square, right next to the War Memorial, and it's being put there because there is such a need downtown uh, for uh, access to to public toilets because we're getting complaints from a lot of our local uh, businesses down there and we also know that many of the social service agencies are indicating that a lot of the homeless and those who are unhoused simply do not have any place to go with the washroom so and
0: and you have two full-time employees who are watching this toilet uh, part of the cleaning whatever it may be i don't know but you have two full-time staff responsible for for the care and upkeep of of that toilet
6: that's what I'm advised. So we will have to hire those people because the toilet obviously hasn't been installed yet. It'll be installed, I believe, later this year, perhaps into the springtime. And then there will be staff there on site 24-7 to monitor, uh, to clean, and to make sure that the toilet is well maintained, all of which uh, will be costed out and the, the cost will be passed on for local ratepayers to pick up. And I can assure you, Jess, we're going to have a very tough budget decision this spring because... We're looking at, uh, you know, our our police budget alone. They've requested, I think, 12% increase in the police budget, and that's just one department. We haven't even started on the other departments yet. So... So, suffice to say, I'm very interested in seeing uh, which of these expenditures the province and the federal government should be picking up, and I think that is one of them.
0: So, I mean, housing and and homelessness has always been a challenge. In this case, because of the house, we've been out of the housing business. We, being the federal government, the provincial government, have been out of the uh, out of the business. They've downloaded. I I would agree with you on that. Uh, But that challenge is always um, going to be there. What do you say to the argument? that part of the problem is also local councils. I'm not saying New Westminster specifically, but local councils have also have gotten away from their core business. And what I mean by that is garbage pickup, uh, potholes, and community centres. That's what you should be focusing on. And I'm not complaining about... uh, a new U.S. council here. But local councils have also now think they're in the climate change business. They've also gotten, and maybe this is more Vancouver, but parking taxes and, and, and empty cup fees. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it could be Stanley Park, whatever it may be. The city councils have also um, caused some of this problem because they should stick to the core basics. And some would argue the last um, municipal election, certainly here in Vancouver. With citizens saying, get back to basics, I don't need to worry, I I, I care about climate change, but charging me a parking tax or an empty cup fee isn't the issue. Don't you think some of this also is about city councils and city halls getting back to basics as well, rather than just blaming uh, senior levels of government?
6: Oh, I will absolutely agree with you, <laughs> vehemently agree. I think many city councils have taken on roles of things that simply are not uh, within their uh, jurisdiction and for which they do not have uh, the adequate funding to pay for it. For example, you mentioned climate change. The ratepayers, we have our own electrical utility in New Westminster, so we have our own uh, kind of outside of BC Hydro, and we charge our citizens. Our citizens pay a 3.5% climate action levy on their hydro, which is different than if you're in Burnaby and Coquitlam. So, our council, we have taken on uh, extra um, items and we're also charging our citizens for those extra items. And all I'm saying, and I'm glad council passed the motion this week. I was very pleased to see that. And I thank my colleagues for supporting the motion. We will be able to quantify all the things you talked about, Jazz, in terms of like the city of Vancouver did. And the figure was staggering in the city of Vancouver. How if much? you look back to that report, it was 230. Million dollars of expenditures that they could quantify in one year in two thousand and twenty one and that did not include any of the capital expenditures. I think the total amount was three hundred and fifty three million dollars. so I would dare say that if we run through a similar exercise in the city of new Westminster, um, the local ratepayers will have probably have their jaws drop when they see what expenditures we are picking up in terms of stuff that should be done by senior orders of government. Hmm.
0: Well, uh, and and so you, you've brought this forward, they've supported it. And so over the next few weeks in U.S. Minster citizens, they will get a sense of, of uh, what they're paying for that perhaps should be covered by uh, the provincial government, even potentially the federal government.
6: Yeah, unfortunately it won't be a few weeks. Council did amend the motion. I did ask for it to be part of the 2023 budget uh, cycle, unfortunately it's it's coming late in the game so staff indicated they weren't able to produce that kind of uh, analyses uh, before the 2023 budget cycle but rest assured I, i'm anticipating something before the summertime and the public uh, will see the report and be able to digest it and we'll be able to debate it in council and perhaps it will uh you know prove uh, a very strong argument for us to uh, go to uh, victoria and ottawa and uh, to try to uh, you know meet those those gaps and also perhaps as you said have a discussion as to what areas we should and should not be in as a civic government. Hmm. Daniel,
0: thank you so much for your time, my friend.
6: Thanks for having
0: me on. Let's go to Ottawa. Today, representatives from Sunwing Airlines, WestJet and Air Canada appeared before the Federal Transport Committee to explain to MPs what happened in the days before and after Christmas, when thousands of passengers saw their flights delayed or cancelled. I'm sure you saw many images on your nightly newscast in regards to that chaos. Now, committee members directed many of their questions at Sunwing, uh, the vacation airline that left hundreds of Canadians stranded in Mexico when their flights uh, flights home were cancelled. Uh, Sunwing's airline president, Len Corrado, opened his remarks to the committee with an apology. Now, Corrado added that winter storms caused massive delays at airports in Quebec and Ontario and shut down Vancouver's air report almost completely take a listen to his
6: comments with respect to passenger communications we've immediately implemented changes to address some of the technical issues with flight alert notifications to improve communications with our customers with all this said the bottom line is we know we could have done better
0: there is no doubt and i think that's the public's view uh, as well that was uh, Sunwing's airline president len Carado, as i said began his remarks to the comments committee with an apology. Now, one of the other uh, folks who did speak um, at that hearing was YVR CEO Tamara Vrooman. Her comments come as Vancouver International Airport is promising to do better after thousands of passengers were stranded, of course, during that storm. The airport authority uh, said that they've hired private companies to help conduct a review to figure out how to improve service after the weather-related disruptions. And if you think about the images you saw there, of course, with the uh, winter storm, planes were grounded, passengers slept on the floor of, air, of the airport or were stranded uh, in other countries in some cases. And of course, thousands of bags were misplaced as well. YVR CEO Tamara Ruman joins us now. Tamara, thank you for speaking to us today.
7: Yeah, thanks very much. My
0: pleasure. Uh, the, uh, you, you know, there's been talk about YVR wanting to uh, look at the Christmas holidays and what transpired there and get a review done in regards to what could be done better. Um, Does this acknowledge that things could have been done better by yourself and the airport in regards to dealing with the weather chaos?
7: Certainly, after every uh, incident that we have, large or small, we always commission an after what we call an after-action review. Uh, there's always things that we can learn uh, to improve and strengthen our airport going forward. I think the areas that we feel were unacceptable during uh, the snow events uh, really relate to the length of time that people spent on aircraft on the tarmac uh, once the uh, once the congestion. Uh, occurred, and second, the level and consistency of communications uh, largely from airlines, but that could have been facilitated and assisted uh, by the airport. To, um, to passengers so they can make the decisions that they need to make given the disruption and get them on their way. So we're focused on both of those things. We've put interim measures in already to uh, address those, but certainly we want to put permanent measures in place, some of which require changes that are beyond our authority to make across the uh, airport community um, that will allow those to be permanent.
0: The issue of time on planes, is that uh, indirectly or directly ultimately decided by airlines or by the airport?
7: What happens with uh, delays like the ones that we saw in December is that it's a complex ecosystem of actors. It's airlines, it's ground handling crew that are contracted by airlines, it's the airport, it's the navigation authority, all working to try and get uh, aircraft uh, onto gates as soon as possible so people can uh, get off. People might be surprised to know, though, that airport authorities, including uh, YBR, we do not have the authority or the ability to tow aircraft in fact we're not legally allowed to do so for insurance reasons so we couldn't even if we wanted to and we don't have any of that equipment so we rely on the ground handling capabilities contracted to airlines those were highly stressed during the uh, winter event that we saw here and so their availability in a timely way clearly was inadequate so there's changes that we'd like to see to make the uh, gating processes clear in advance and have a clear authority to adhere to those so we don't get the uh, issues around towing that we had whether it's the
0: airport the airlines uh nav canada whatever it may be uh is it fair to say we did fail collectively The, the 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 entities fail collectively when when you have people at times out on the, uh, on the tarmac for 9, 10 hours. It, it is, it's a fair comment, is it not, to say we did fail in regards to our response to that snowstorm?
7: Certainly the, uh, the number one priority for all of those uh, entities that you mentioned, including the airport, is safety. And so, safety can never be compromised, and so we did uphold our safety uh, our safety uh, promise. Did we do that in the most efficient way, uh, and did it result in people staying on aircraft for longer than was acceptable? Absolutely, uh, that is the case, and I have huge uh, empathy for people who are on those aircraft in a very, very uh, difficult uh, situations at a difficult time. but we did we did work through our snow operations, uh, we were operating. Uh, uh, According to the safety regulations, and so that part we did deliver on. What we didn't deliver on is how efficiently we're able to gate aircraft and how we work across the ecosystem to share information, customer information, airline communication information to support our airline partners to get people the information they need so they can get decisions uh, made in the event of cancellations and delays and get on their way.
0: Uh, is it, why does it take so long, or why does it take an event like this? to convince um, institutions to change. And I don't necessarily am blaming the airport. And there are other actors, as you say, airlines. Uh, there's uh, air traffic controllers. And, and above all of that is Ottawa. And you were speaking to a transportation committee uh, today uh, based in Ottawa as well. Um, why, is it, why does it take this to start looking at these processes and procedures? Because it is, at the end of the day, a snowstorm in Canada in winter, And we should be better at dealing this. And I know it's a bigger, broader question, but why does it take events like this to actually start talking about change and processes?
7: We certainly have seen weather events uh, in the past, and uh, we, in fact, we had a weather event here, as you know, uh, Jazz in Metro Vancouver on the 29th of uh, November, where the region was virtually shut down. Uh, you'll recall, and the airport was fully operational um, through that time. So it's not so much the winter event that was the key issue. Certainly, the way that the snow fell this particular time. You know, we we're expecting between 10 and 11 centimeters uh, in an eight-hour period and we got, uh, we got 30, so three times the uh, forecast amount, which put uh, pressure on the safety regulations and timeout uh, between when an aircraft is de-iced and when it's cleared for takeoff, which started the congestion. But it's the fact that the uh, aviation industry and travel industry was particularly hard hit by the pandemic. And so the the twin risks of Uh, increased frequency and uniqueness of weather events, whether it's uh, heat dome or uh, atmospheric river or successive snow events across uh, the country in a row, those coupled with an industry that's just recovering from a uh, labor and a training and an expertise uh, point of view can't just Put, hire somebody off the street and put them into our operations it requires detailed training as you can appreciate those two things put stress on the system so so processes that we collectively have relied on to safely mm-hmm. and efficiently operate this airport for example over the last 30 years proved inadequate on those two issues particularly of gating and how we operate the towing around the aircraft around the airfield and communications I
0: mean, you do raise a good point Look, the 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 the, um, the snowstorm in late November there It took me eight hours to get home on the evening commute, so I could have flown almost to London if I was at the airport, If you think about that. So you do raise a good point there. Uh, But in regards to those two specific issues, you will be doing the review. How long will this review take?
7: We've already done a preliminary review as I said because of course certainly winters not over and uh, we may uh, see uh, other s- uh, snow events uh, in the in the coming uh, weeks and days although none are currently forecast uh, so we want to make sure that we're ready for those and we take the immediate learnings and implement them which we've done in partnership with the airlines the ground handlers and navigation Canada but we also need to make these changes permanent and some of those changes with respect to the responsibility for towing and gating the responsibility for clear sharing of uh, communication and data, the ability to digitize and improve the way that we share information, for example, about the location uh, of a piece of luggage, um, which is always the legal uh, uh, responsibility of the airlines. But we have an opportunity, I think, because it transits through our our airport to be able to participate in getting information to passengers. All of those things should be permanent improvements going forward. So we want to take the time to document See what we can learn from best practices internationally here directly for the first time in one of these kind of reviews from travelers who traveled around what worked okay for them and what was absolutely unacceptable and needs to fix, and get their information about what priorities, particularly around information sharing, would work. All of that will take a little bit of time, but we're hoping to have that uh, action plan ready to release to the public in March.
0: In March, all right. Tamara, thank you so much for your time. appreciate uh, you chatting with us uh, about events uh, in December. Look forward to chatting with you when uh, that review does come out. Thanks a lot.
7: Thanks very much, Jazz. Appreciate your interest.
0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.
4: 911
7: 9-1-1. 911. 9-1-1. 9-1-1. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship! Ah, there was an explosion! Oh my god, the ship is sinking! I can't get out! There's water everywhere. We're going down. I've got a lock on your location.
6: Stay with me. Hubbard, hubbard. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 9-1-1 on a new night, Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.